Thank you, friends. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. It's a joy to be here again at the Master's College and to be in the Word of God with you. My wife and I were talking about uh, the few days that I was going to be with you, and she was asking me specifically how I could pray for her. And she said, now, what are you speaking on? And I said, well, I've been assigned patience and kindness. And she looked at me, and a slight smile broke on her lips, and she said, I'll pray for you. (laughs) The Lord has a sense of humor, doesn't he? When these assignments come in, sometimes they they hit you where it hurts. And uh, you're forced to face up with your own sins and shortcomings, even as you expound the Word of God. And so it's been a joy to be in this passage. It was a joy to be under your ministry last night, John. I had about nine questions I wanted to ask him after the exposition. I only got to ask one, so maybe I'll be able to corner him and ask some more questions, but it was such a good introduction to what we're doing in this passage. This passage is a passage about sanctification, about how God grows us in grace, what it means to grow in grace. And I'd like you to see several things before we even read the passage, just so that you understand the big picture of what's going on. And the first thing I want you to see is this. Sanctification ultimately is God's work in us. Sanctification requires our activity. We're called upon to do things. There are commands in the Word of God that we're called to obey. There are things that we're told to avoid. There is effort involved in our growing in grace. Sanctification doesn't just happen. And we'll, we'll see in the study of this passage that whereas the works of the flesh very often just happen, it is easy to be impatient. You do not have to practice. It comes naturally. Being patient, however, requires concentration, it requires commitment, and it requires the help of God's Holy Spirit at work in you to do those things. But ultimately, sanctification is God's work in us. And the Apostle Paul stresses this all the time. May I just remind you of a few places? Turn with me, for instance, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Where in verse 4, we read that there are varieties of gifts, but they're from the same Spirit. There are varieties of service. They're from the same Lord. Verse 6, there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. It's God that empowers us to the activities that he calls us to. He does not save us from our sins and say, now you're on your own. Be good, be godly, live the Christian life, grow in maturity, do the right thing. He does not leave us alone. He is actively involved empowering us. Think of how this is stressed in the book of Ephesians. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 
where we are told this. Verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And there's another one of those walk passages that Dr. MacArthur was taking us to last night. But notice there, from before the foundation of the world, God has been preparing that we would walk in these things. God was interested in your sanctification before you existed. So not only is he empowering you to do the things that he calls you to do, from before the foundation of the world, he was preparing beforehand what the work uh, was that he was calling you to do. Or turn to Philippians chapter 2. In a hugely important passage about sanctification, in verse 13, we read, It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So immediately after calling you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, which doesn't mean save yourself, but actually is an exhortation to sanctification in the Christian life, immediately after he says that, he emphasizes that it is God who is at work in you. In other words, he encourages you, having urged you to take seriously your growth in grace, he says this, by the way, it's God who is at work in you to do that. And so when you, when you listen to the language of Hebrews 13, 21, turn with me there. Some of you know it by memory. Where we hear of the God of peace who will, verse 21, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Now, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews had very good Pauline theology. And that's just, that is a ripoff of Ephesians 2. 10 and of Philippians 2.13. It's in the form of a benediction, but it, it's, it's the same theology. So here's the first word of encouragement I have for you. God is far more interested in your sanctification than you are. And when you get tired and weary and discouraged, let me just encourage you, God doesn't. He's not going to give up on you. There, there is a, sanctification can discourage you because you see the gap between where you are and where you want to be. Sanctification can discourage you because you can be growing in leaps and bounds in one area in the Christian life and you're getting creamed in another area. And, you've, and, what it, and which one of those do you think about when that's happening? The one where you're getting creamed. And when that happens, you need to know God cares far more about your sanctification than you do. And he will not tire, falter, or fail. He is at work at you, in you. So remember that sanctification is God's work in you, and he is far more interested than you are. And be encouraged by that not to give up. Second. Notice that this passage itself emphasizes, and I'm talking about 
Ephesians chapter 5 or uh, Galatians chapter 5 again, this passage itself emphasizes that sanctification cannot be done in isolation. The Christian life is congregational. The Christian life is congregational. Most of the exhortations found in the New Testament in which the apostles or Jesus call upon us to do certain things cannot be done if we are not living life together in a congregation. And this is one of those passages. I get the words in this passage tonight, patience and kindness. Well, guess what? You can't be either of those things alone. There have to be other people around for you to be patient and kind. It requires you to be living in relationship with brothers and sisters before you can be patient and kind. So this, this whole passage reminds you again, we need one another. We can't even obey the basic commands of the Christian life without one another. We, we live in fellowship with one another. We, we live in relationship with one another. We can't even grow without learning how to exercise these kinds of gifts in those kinds of relationships. So sanctification cannot be done in isolation. Third, in sanctification, God is restoring his image in us. These fruit of the Spirit, which are described in this passage, are all reflections of the character of God. And when God is at work in you to display love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, all these, that when God is at work in you to cultivate those characteristics, you understand what he's doing. He's making you like him. God will never ask you to do something that he is not prepared to do himself. And God never calls you to be something that he is not already himself. And so these fruit of the Spirit, these characteristics wrought in us by the work of the Spirit are reflections of the character of God. And as you grow in these things, you are having the image of God restored in you. When man was originally created, he was created in the image and likeness of God. And through rebellion against God, that image was effaced, it was marred. It was not lost, but it was marred. And in salvation, we are not only forgiven of our sins, but God begins to restore that image in sanctification. And so as we grow in grace, what is happening to us is we are beginning to bear the marks of what God is like, his character. So as we look at patience and kindness tonight, one of the very important issues for us to understand is God is patient and kind. And our patience and kindness is rooted in who he is and how he is towards us. One other thing I want you to notice in this passage. Paul is a really good pastor. He is a really good pastor. Paul knows 
when to exhort and when to encourage and how to do it. You know, sometimes when you're doing a Bible study in a passage like this, and you come to a list of nine words, and, and you're trying to be practical as you approach it, you, know, you could be sitting around in a room working through the passage with some friends, and you're tempted to make this move. Okay, be joyful. Um, be patient. Be, be kind. Uh, be self-controlled. Now, of course, all of those things are biblical. <laughs> but that's not quite how Paul puts it in this passage, is it? The, the exhortation in this passage, look at it, is all the way back where Dr. MacArthur started reading last night. Look at verse 16. I say, walk by the Spirit. There's the exhortation in the passage. Everything else is simply telling you what it looks like to walk by the Spirit. Now, that's a huge move because if you start, if you start out with, okay, be loving, be joyful, be peaceful, be patient, be kind, be good, be faithful, be gentle, be self-controlled. Are you, are you overwhelmed already? But those in this passage serve, first of all, to show you what it means to walk by the Spirit, and second of all, to contrast to the works of the flesh. So the exhortation is, I want you to walk by the Spirit. I don't want you to do the works of the flesh. Here's what they are. Let me show you what the fruit of the Spirit is, however. It's an encouragement. Paul is incredibly good at that. He's careful with how he says things. Think of it this way. Let, let's say your dear younger brother whom you love has lost his life. He drowned. And you're, frankly, you're having a hard time getting over that. It's been, it's been months, you're a believer, you believe the Bible, you love God, you trust him, you're having a hard time getting over that traumatic event. You loved your younger brother. And after months and months, you've, you've grieved and you've grieved and you've struggled and you've struggled and a friend says to you, you know, the Bible says don't grieve as those who have no hope. And let's say another friend says to you, you know, I want you to know this is my prayer for you. That you wouldn't grieve as those who have no hope. Now, do you feel the difference between those two things? Now, notice how Paul says that in 1 Thessalonians. He does not say, don't grieve as those who have no hope. He says, Thessalonians, I don't want you to be ignorant so that you won't grieve as those who have no hope. Do you, do you feel the difference between that? He is a really good pastor. Because when, when you get the don't grieve thing, immediately your back goes up, doesn't it? Well, you, you, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know how I love my younger brother. But when you get the, I, I don't want you to miss out on the peace 
that passes understanding that's available to you. I don't want you to grieve as one without hope. The defenses come down. Now, Paul still wants to get you there, but he's really good at figuring out how to get you there. He's doing that in this passage. Walk by the Spirit. There's the exhortation. Now, what does that look like? So, be encouraged as we... Yes, it's appropriate for us to be convicted. I was convicted when this passage was assigned to me. Believe me. Conviction's a good thing. But, but don't fail to be encouraged because this passage is an encouragement. Now, let's hear the Word of God together and let's pray before we hear it. Heavenly Father, this is your Word. We don't live by bread alone. We live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The way you sanctify us is with truth and your word is truth all scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for teaching reproof correction for training in righteousness that the man the woman of God might be equipped for every good work so speak Lord your servants listen we ask this in Jesus name amen this is the word of God hear it in Galatians chapter 5 we'll begin in verse 16 but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Sensuality. Idolatry. Sorcery. Enmity. Strife. Jealousy. Fits of anger. Rivalries. Dissensions. Divisions. Envy. Drunkenness. Orgies. And things like these, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. Two words. Patience and kindness. The the, the fruit are listed in a, in a group of three triads. 
You noticed that as I read. Love, joy, peace, followed by patience, kindness, goodness, followed by faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But we're just going to concentrate on the first two of the second triad tonight together. Patience and kindness, both characteristics of God. When we speak of the patience of God, we are speaking of his forbearance of judgment. If God were not patient, this world would not exist right now. He has forborne in bringing about just judgment on this world because he is patient. And that is regularly used as a motivation to believers in the Bible to be patient ourselves. God is patient. You be patient. Because God wants you to be like him. You're made in his image and likeness. Your redemption is meant not only to save you from your sins, forgive you of your sins, but to restore that image of God in you so that you are like him. He's patient that's what it looks like for you to grow in the image and likeness of God, to be patient. And kindness. God is kind. In the Old Testament, don't forget this because we'll come back to it later, the word that is almost invariably underneath our English translations, the word kind is chesed. That is a very important word, and it underlies why God's people in both the Old Testament and the New Testament are called to kindness, because he is kind, and he has been kind to us. So here's the Apostle Paul saying, what does it look like to walk by the Spirit? It looks like patience and kindness. Now, there are a lot of places that we can go. There are a lot of great examples of patience in the Bible, aren't there? Job is one of the great examples of patience. That poor brother bore up a long time under many hard things. He endured, and endurance is an important part of the life. Jesus is a great example of patience, isn't he? And it's not just how he was patient in the things that he did in order to accomplish our salvation. Think of how patient he was with his disciples. You know, if Jesus had corrected the disciples every time they deserved it, do you know how the Gospels would read? Peter, stop that. John, you idiot. Don't do that anymore. It, it, the Gospels would be filled with corrections. Jesus was patient with his disciples. But let me take you to a passage which illustrates how this kind of patience happens. Turn with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Be patient, therefore, brothers. Now, James comes right out and gives an exhortation. Paul's exhortation, walk by the Spirit, what does that look like? Patience. James comes right out and gives the exhortation. Be patient. Patient, therefore, brothers, 
James chapter 5, verse 7. Until the coming of the Lord. Now, this is huge. For James, the backdrop of our patience is waiting for the coming of the Lord. James wants to frame the whole of the Christian life in light of the coming of the Lord. The New Testament does this 300 times. And when God repeats himself, he usually is up to something. And what he's up to there is attempting to, to frame the whole of the way you live life by one important event, the coming of the Lord. And so James wants you to patiently await the coming of the Lord because he knows you have a lot to endure in the Christian life. And so he understands that the Christian life is a marathon, not a, not a sprint, and the second coming is the finish line, not anything less. We're not done until the second coming. We're in a marathon. And so we're to live patiently for the coming of Christ, even under duress. Now, notice what James talks about next. Verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Now, there's yet another reference to the second coming as when Jesus comes again the second time, he comes as judge. The judge is standing at the door. So now, yet another pointing forward to the second coming, but now thinking specifically of the judgment aspect of it, and here's the exhortation. Don't complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. We're not showing patience we're not showing Christian patience when we grumble and complain against one another. There's a very practical example of patience. And it, this plays out at home and at work with friends and at play all the time. It played out in Moses' life. The people of Israel grumbled. Moses got tired of their grumbling. And guess what he did? He grumbled. And he didn't go into the promised land. He was impatient. And James here says, you're not showing Christian patience when you grumble against the brethren. Don't complain. Don't recriminate against. Don't blame the brethren in the midst of your trials. And then he gives a very homely illustration. He, he speaks of the endurance of Job, and then immediately <clears throat> he gives uh, an example of the, the farmer. Look back at verse 7. The farmer waits for the precious produce from the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rain. So there's your example of patience. Your patient life apart. Farmers have to sit around and wait a lot. They work hard, 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 and then they wait. And that's what patience looks like in the Christian life. So it's rooted in our living all of life in light of the coming of the Lord. 
but it's expressed in our relationships with one another. And in James' passage in particular, it's expressed in not grumbling or complaining against one another. It's very practical stuff. When we're impatient, we are forgetting the coming of the Lord. When we're impatient, we're forgetting the Lord's patience with us. When we're impatient, we're not modeling the patience of the Lord. And so one of the things that we'll want to do, if you're a person like me who struggles with impatience, you will be you will want to be more deliberate in how you think about what our patience is grounded in so that you can catch yourself. Lord, you've been very patient with me. I'm wanting to be very impatient with this person right now. So you've been very patient with me. Is there a way that I can express your patience with me in the way I'm about to relate to this person? Lord, you've called me to live the whole Christian life in light of your coming. You've called me to wait. You've called me to endure. You've called me to be patient. Can't, can't that also be expressed in this relationship with my child, with my colleague, with my friend? Should be. That's what J James is, very practical stuff from James. Now, what about kindness? Well, again, there, there's so many examples of kindness that we could go to in the Bible to illustrate what is involved in the kindness that Paul says reflects walking in the Spirit. Think of the story of Joseph and his brothers. Turn, turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. In Genesis 37, verse 4 we are told this. When his brothers, this is Joseph's brothers, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. No surprise there. No surprise there. But look at the next line and could not speak peacefully to him. Their father's unwise and unjust preferential treatment of Joseph led them to hate him, and it was so tension-creating in that family, they couldn't even have a peaceful conversation. Can any of you relate to that in a home setting? You just can't even have a peaceful conversation. And one of the most glorious things about the story of Joseph is what we learn in Genesis chapter 50. Turn with me there. When, when everything is revealed, you know, they, they found out that Joseph is the guy that Pharaoh has put in charge of Egypt and they're afraid that he's going to harm them now, that he has the power to do it, and he doesn't do it. 
And he explains to them that though they meant it for evil, God meant it for good. It's the Old Testament, Romans 8, 28, Genesis 50, 20. Notice what is said immediately in Genesis 50, 21. We love Genesis 50, 20. We forget Genesis 50, 21. Look at it. Do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, not look at look at what's happening here. Not only does Joseph do a kindness to these brothers. I mean, in in your flesh, what would you have wanted to do to those brothers? Payback will be sweet. Not only does he do a kindness to them, I'm going to take care of you. Don't, don't be upset. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of your children. But for the first time in decades, this family speaks kindly with one another. Is that not a glorious picture of God's work of redemption and restoration? Here is a family that could not even have a peaceful conversation. And after all they've gone through, here they are. It's a family reunion. And they actually like one another. And they're speaking kindly to one another. So it's a beautiful passage about kindness. Another one of the great Old Testament passages about kindness is in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Would you turn with me there? This is the story of Mephibosheth. You remember how this goes? Uh, after Saul's death, Saul's army does not lay down its weapons. They rally behind Abner, his great general, and the civil war, holy war in Israel goes on. And then finally, Ishbosheth is defeated. And in the end, after the forces of Saul are entirely subdued, David asks, 2 Samuel chapter 9, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now this is glorious because this shows how kindness flows out of love. Now remember 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is is, and Paul gives a whole list of things that love is, two of which are love is patient and love is kind. So now, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Yes, Jonathan's crippled child, Mephibosheth. He will eat at my table, says David. Now, any other king in the ancient Near East would have said, okay, we're going to squash the last bug. We're going to get rid of everybody in that line so there's nobody to rally against me. David says, nope, he's going to eat at my house, at my table, at the place of honor because I loved his father. So love begets kindness. 
towards Mephibosheth. But one of the greatest stories of kindness, chesed, is also found in 2 Samuel. Turn to 2 Samuel 23. As David is telling his last words, he recounts the names of his mighty men. These were the men that had stuck with him through thick and thin, through all the various ups and downs and exiles and battles of his life. And as he is listing the names of these mighty men, he pauses, beginning in 2 Samuel 23, verse 13, and he says, okay, I've just got to tell you a story. And here's the story. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. So the Philistines are occupying David's hometown. How do you think he felt about that? And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David, but he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. It's, it's an old man saying, I've got to tell you a story. Just, just to show you how devoted these men were to me. Just to show you the kind of chesed they had for me. The kind of kindness that they had for me. Here I was in a cave in the wilderness as a refugee and an exile and a fugitive. A wanted man by the Philistines while those filthy, uncircumcised Philistines are in my hometown. And in that cave, one day, I just said out loud, wasn't asking anybody to do anything, I just said out loud, I would give anything to be able to drink a cup of water from the well of my hometown in Bethlehem. And three of my mighty men overheard me say that out loud, and they looked at one another and they said, let's do it. I mean, this is, this is all the stuff for a Steven Spielberg movie. I mean, you may want to take this back to Disney because there's a movie in this. And these guys ride across the desert and I don't know, it doesn't tell us here. I, did they sneak into Bethlehem? You know, did they get past the, the sentinel and sneak into, the well would have been right at the gate. How in the world would they have gotten it? Did they fight their way into Bethlehem? I have no idea. But somehow, they get to Bethlehem through the Philistines. They draw water from the well. They ride back across the desert. And think about it, that may have been the hardest part. You've just crossed the desert twice and you've got a pack of cool water, but you save it for David. And you get back to the, to the, um, to the cave and you say, um, <clears throat> David, 
got some water for you here um, from the well of Bethlehem. And then what does David do? He pours it out on the ground. <laughs> out of cold cocked him right there. But understand, David is not being disrespectful to these men. It's actually the exact opposite. What, what David is saying is, I don't deserve this kind of devotion. These men heard me ask out loud just a, a, a cry of my heart. I didn't mean anybody to do anything about this. It was just a cry of the heart. Lord, I'd do anything to have a drink of water from the well of my hometown in Bethlehem. And these men risk their lives to bring me a cup of water. I don't deserve that kind of kindness. I don't deserve that kind of devotion. Only you do, Lord. And he pours that water out as a sacrifice to the Lord. Lord, you're the only one that deserves that kind of kindness. Now, the chapter goes on. Would you look with me at verse 39? Do you see who the last mighty man was? Did, did you know that he was a mighty man? Uriah the Hittite. Now let me ask you a question. Was David kind to Uriah? He saw his wife. He wanted her. He took her. She became pregnant with his child. He tried to bring Uriah back from the field of battle so that he could cover up his sin so that they could be together as husband and wife so that Uriah would not suspect what had gone on. Uriah was so devoted to David, he refused even when back in Jerusalem to go and enjoy the company of his beautiful wife. And so, David gave him a letter that was his own death warrant. And he knew that Uriah was so devoted to him that he would not look at it and said, would you go take this to Joab for me? And he had that, and there's just no way that you can candy coat this. He had that man murdered. If you had committed that kind of unkindness, what would you say to the Lord when you were asking forgiveness? We don't have to guess the answer to that question. Would you turn with me to Psalm 51? You remember the story. David's dear friend Nathan comes to him, tells the story of a man who had a precious little lamb who's taken away from him and slaughtered by another man. And David in anger says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan says, you're right, David, and you're that man. What do you say to the Lord? Have mercy on me, O God, according to 
your chesed, according to your kindness, according to, however you want to translate it, according to your loving kindness. David knows his only hope in his unkindness is God's steadfast kindness. That's his only hope. And Paul knows that our capacity for kindness in the hard places in the Christian life can only be empowered by our reckoning with the kindness of God to us in the giving of his son on the cross. If you do not see the kindness of God to you in the giving of his son, Jesus, you will not see the only basis for his forgiving you of your sins in your unkindness or for the living of the Christian life. Our patience and kindness in the Christian life is based upon God's patience and kindness to us. And his patience and kindness to us make us want to be patient and kind. Paul's a good pastor. And he's telling you what it means to walk by the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together in your word. We ask that you would bless it to your glory and our everlasting good. In Jesus' name, amen.